Go ahead and pray. Father God, I just thank you for bringing us all here today, Lord. Father, there are so many people in this world that live their life serving their own gods, living their own way. They die, they perish, they go to hell without ever hearing the name Jesus Christ. But as Paul says, you have predetermined our times and the boundaries of our dwellings that we might seek the Lord in hopes that we might grope for Him and find Him. That is my prayer for us this morning. For those of us in this room that are saved, I pray that we would see Christ more glorious. For those of us who are not, might we find Him. Might we be saved by Him. I pray that all eyes will be open to behold the glory of the Lord, of love, of patience. I pray that you will help me and help everyone who hears. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 2. It says, when John had heard in prison, thank you, brother, about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, are you the coming one or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said to them, go, tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Excuse me one second. So here we have John the Baptist. He's in prison. He's in prison because he rebuked the king about taking his brother's wife. So John rebukes him, he gets thrown into prison. Now John was the last of the Old Testament prophets to prepare the way of the coming of Jesus Christ. But now he's in prison, apparently he's having doubts. So he sends two of his disciples, two of his followers to Jesus. Says, are you the coming one? Are you the promised Christ. Jesus could have simply said yes, but he didn't. He says, go, go tell John the things you hear and you see. You know, our brother Sean read the main passage we are dealing with today over love. John tells us in 1 John that by this we know we pass from death to life 
if we love one another. So my question to you is the same question I had to ask myself all week. Without saying a word, could someone come to the conclusion that you are a Christian simply by looking at your love? Now, our main text is 1 Corinthians 13, which gives us 14 characteristics of love. But I want to do something a little different today. Instead of going to that passage to define love, I want to look at our Lord Jesus Christ to get a picture of love. Now, while I would love to deal with all of the characteristics of love we see there, today we're going to deal with the first one, and that is patience. Love is patient. So with that being said, I'd like to answer three questions today. First of all, what is patience? Second of all, what does patience look like? And last of all, how do I become more patient? So what is patience? If you will, turn with me to the next gospel, the gospel of Mark. We're going to start in chapter 8. So if you would, please follow me along. I, I want you to see this in your own Bibles. I don't just want you to hear what I have to say, but as Paul says, don't despise preaching to test all things. Hold fast to what is good. So Mark chapter 8. So this is the first time Jesus reveals that he's going to die. He's going to rise again. Mark chapter 8 starting in verse 31 it says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke this word openly. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned around and looked at the disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. So here, he first reveals what's going to happen when they go up to Jerusalem. That he's going to die. The chief priests, the scribes, they're going to deliver him up to death. Now, of course, Peter is like, no, you're, you're everything to me. You're my teacher. You're my Lord. I've, I've forsaken all and followed you. I've left my fishing business. So Peter's like, no, no, this can't happen to you. But Jesus is like, you need to realize that I didn't come to be this military messiah. I didn't come to do what you guys might think is that I should do. I came to lay down my life to save a people from their sins. But anyway, here we have Peter rebuked. And it says he turned around and looked at all of his disciples. Almost as a rebuke to any of them. 
Now you think if the God-man himself rebukes you straight to your face, calling you Satan, you think that would make an impact. You think you wouldn't forget that. You think Peter would get it, right? The rest of the disciples, they will realize, okay, this is the purpose he came. Let's get behind this. Look at chapter 9, starting in verse 2. Now after six days, so this about a week after the rebuke to Peter, to all the disciples. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white, like snow, such as no launderer on earth could whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. And a cloud came down and overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. Hear him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. Now as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one of the things they had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, stop right there. So here they are. They're taken up on a mountain. Remind you, it's six days, just about a week after this rebuke. They're taken up on a mountain. Jesus Christ is transfigured before their faces. His clothes are whiter than anyone can make them on this earth. Moses and Elijah are brought back from the dead as it were. They're speaking to him. Luke tells us they're talking about his death. The same thing they were just rebuked about a week before. A voice, God comes from heaven, says, this is my beloved son. Hear him. They come down. Jesus says, don't tell anyone till I've risen from the dead. It's very clear what this is about. It's about Jesus Christ. It's about his death he's about to accomplish, his resurrection. But what do the disciples ask? Verse 11, they asked him, saying, Why did the scribes say Elijah must come first? They're concerned about some prophecy, some theology. It's about Jesus Christ. He's just rebuked them. He's just transfigured before them. God bore witness. Moses, Elijah bore witness. And they're concerned about some prophecy? Completely missed the point. You know, but it's easy to look at them. Until I realize I'm looking in the mirror. I do the same thing time and again. 
So how does Jesus respond? Does he say, look, I've already rebuked you guys. Have you forgotten that quick? Are you that slow? Did you not see Moses? Did you not see Elijah? Did you not hear my father? That's not what happens. Verse 12. Then he answered and told them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they wished, as it is written of him. This is patience. So this word patience, what does it mean? It's a Greek word, makrothemia. Makro comes over the English, macro, long. The rest of it comes from thumos in the Greek. It means an outburst of rage or anger or passion. It literally means to be long-tempered. Think of a stick of dynamite. And the wick just keeps burning and burning and burning. But the idea of this word is not just a long time till it explodes, but just keeps burning forever. It never explodes. And we see in our Lord Jesus here, he had every reason to explode, to be angry, to insult them. But he didn't. Even though their question was misplaced, they completely missed the point. He gently and kindly answers their question. Let's go a little farther to verse 30. Now here Jesus, he sets before them his death and resurrection again. By now, certainly they're going to get it. They've been rebuked. They've been taken up on the mountain of transfiguration. Certainly they're going to get this time. Mark 9.30 They departed from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know it. For he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men. And they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. But they did not understand this saying and were afraid to ask him. So they entertained it. But what happens? Verse 33. Then he came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked him, What is it you disputed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. Really? Who would be the great? You're worried about who's going to be the greatest? I'm better than you. When Jesus Christ reveals his death, his resurrection, did you miss the rebuke? Did you miss the mountain? And now you considered it, but you wouldn't, you wouldn't mention it. You wouldn't ask about it. You were afraid. And you start arguing like little kids. Is that how Jesus responds? Verse 35. And he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, 
If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Oh, the patience of our Lord Jesus Christ. He could have very easily said, you know what, guys? I have been teaching you. I have been setting myself before you. I've taken at least three of you up on the mountain of transfiguration. What? Are you guys slow? Are you guys stupid? What, what's going on? But that's not what he does. Yet, that's what many of us do. But this is the patience of Christ. Let's go to chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. Starting in verse 32. So here, we get a third time. Jesus predicts his death and resurrection. Mark 10, 32. Now they were on the road, going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was going before them. And they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. Then he took the twelve aside again and began to tell them the things that would happen to him. Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. And they will mock him, and scourge him, and spit on him, and kill him. And the third day, he will rise again. Notice how much detail he goes into. Perhaps he was thinking, okay, they didn't get it. They didn't get the first time. After the rebuke, they didn't get it. They didn't get up on the mountain. They didn't get the next time. I'm going to give them a little more detail. Maybe, just maybe, if I get through their heads. But what happens? Verse 35. Then James and John, now remember, the ones taken up on the mountain were Peter, James, and John. So out of all of them, James and John, should have had a little more revelation because they wanted the mountain of transfiguration. So you would think at least these two disciples might have a little better understanding. But what does it say? 35, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. He said to them, what do you want me to do for you? Now, don't you think they should say, "Uh, teacher, we want you to stop this. We don't want you to go up and die. But that's not what happens. They're not concerned about Jesus at all. Verse 37, they said to him, grant us that we may sit, one on your right hand, and the other on your left, in your glory. 
how often do we make things about us? When it's about Jesus Christ. You know, we're told in 1 Corinthians 10.31, rather you eat, rather you drink. Whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Yet we live our lives like it's all about us. We do what makes us feel good. We go where we want. We spend our time how we want to, with the people we want to. It's all about us. It's what we see here. So, certainly by now, Jesus is going to blow up. Certainly by now, the insults are coming. Right? Verse 39. Oh, excuse me, verse 38. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? Another reference to his death. They said to him, we are able, still concerned with themselves. Oh, we can do it. Now make us sit at your right and left hand. Yeah, we can handle it. Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink the cup that I drink. And with the baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Very humble response. You guys are worried about sitting on my right hand, sitting on my left hand. You guys are worried about being great. I'm the Lord of glory, but guess what? It's not mine to give. It's my Father's. Very humble response. Very loving response. Very patient response. Verse 41, when the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. But Jesus called them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great, he shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave." of all for even the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many notice the progression here you know when it comes to us I know when it comes to me often the more someone tries your patience the shorter your patience gets the more irritated you get, the more frustrated you get, the more short you get with them. But what would Jesus? He's rebuked them. He's taken up on the Mount of Transfiguration. He's revealed his death twice more now. But he doesn't just simply instruct them this time. He points to himself as an example. Now, Mark doesn't record this incident, 
But if you'll turn to the next gospel, the gospel of Luke, chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 14. This is the night that Jesus is going to be betrayed, going to be arrested, going to be delivered up as he's been predicting this whole time. Verse 14, when the hour had come, he sat down with the 12 apostles with him. Then he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. So this, it's a feast of the Passover. The Passover is the greatest festival, the most important feast among the Jews. It represents the tenth plague where God killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt to deliver his people. And they would take a lamb and they would kill the lamb and they would put the blood over the door and the angel of death would pass over. Just as each one of us, if you do not have the blood of Jesus Christ on your life, you will not be passed over, but you will be visited by the wrath of God. But if you have the blood of Jesus Christ on your life, he will pass over. But here we have Jesus Christ taking their most important festival, and he's changing it and making it about himself. Certainly now the disciples are going to get it, right? He even goes further, verse 21. But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. They begin to question among themselves which of them it was who was doing this thing. But what happens next? Are they going to finally get it this time? I mean, they're at least questioning which one of them is going to betray Christ. But are they concerned about Christ? Verse 24. Now there was also a dispute among them of which of them should be considered the greatest. Again? Really? Who is going to be the greatest? I mean, Jesus, at one time, 
He went in and flipped the tables in the temple. He said, take these things away. Drove them out with a whip. Certainly he's going to do that now. Certainly he's going to get up. He's going to flip the table. He's going to be like, what's wrong with you guys? But that's not what happens. Verse 26. Excuse me, verse 25. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. But not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger. And he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. He doesn't blow up. This is patience. The patience of our Lord. Perfect patience. But he takes it a step further this time. Luke does not record this. But if you will, turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 13. So Luke kind of alludes to it when, he's, when Jesus points to himself and says, I sit among you as the one who serves. But in John, we get the full picture of John chapter 13, starting in verse 2. And supper being ended, the devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, I think that would be enough to puff anyone up. Look at Jesus. He rose from the supper, verse 4, laid aside his garments, took a towel, guarded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Where's the insults? Where's the flipping of the table? I mean, at least he could have put hot water in there and burned their feet, right? But we see none of that. But perfect patience. This is patience. So the question I began with, I'll ask again, but I'm going to change the language a little bit. Without you saying a word, if someone were to come to you 
Say, are you a Christian? Could you like Jesus, which we looked at in Matthew 11, could you like him say, what do you see? What do you hear? Do you see a patient person? Do you see someone like Christ? Do you hear of a patient person like Christ? Come to your own conclusion. Do you think I'm a Christian when you examine my patients? But now we ask ourselves, how can we be like this? How can we become more patient? You know, you may have encountered someone and you talk to them. You know, they, they have some, some sin that they deal with. You may confront them or however it may come up and they say, oh, don't worry about me. I'm working on it. Or they might be a little more spiritual and say, oh, God's working on me. He's not finished with me yet. Well, how do we deal with those things? How do we become more patient? How do we deal with our impatience? Do we just say like Peter, if I have to die with you, I'll never deny you. If I have to die, I'm going to become patient. Is that what we do? Because it didn't work out too well for Peter. What do we do? Turn with me to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Verse 18, very last verse. 2 Corinthians 3, 18. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, I'm going to change the language, the patience of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from patience to patience, just as by the Lord was the Spirit. This is how we're transformed. It's not by trying to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. It's not by saying, you know, I'm going to become more, a, a more patient person. It's by saying, I can't make myself more patient. And the more I try, the more impatient I get. The more I blow up at people. How, how do I become patient? by looking upon the patience of Christ. First of all, his patience on your behalf started on the cross, which he predicted, which the disciples completely missed. Peter tells us of this patience. He says, Christ committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges righteously. As he in his own body bore our sins on that tree, and by his stripes we are healed. When they took him, we could go through the Gospels and look at the details of what happened to Christ. How he was mocked. 
how we was spit upon, how we was beaten, a crown of thorns on his head, but he was perfectly patient, never blew up. He, went, he said when Peter came and tried to defend him in the garden, he said, I could call 12 legions of angels. I could destroy these people. When they came to arrest him, he said, I am. They flew back to the ground as a brother Jeff preached over. Yet, he patiently endured it all. As his back was being ripped to shreds, patient. As nails going through his hands, patient. All of the mocking, patient. Perfectly patient. And more than all, as Isaiah says, it pleased the Lord to crush him. God himself crushed Jesus Christ because that's what you deserve and I deserve. But Jesus Christ was crushed and he took it patiently. Didn't complain on that cross. He didn't blow up on that cross. He didn't get mad at his father as we often do. We get mad at God for the smallest thing. When we don't endure one millimeter of what Christ did. He was patient on our behalf. But then, as we saw today, he's patient with us. You know, James tells us, when we read the word, we're looking into a mirror. How many times do we miss the point? Christ is transfigured, as it were. We come in here to church. We're not concerned about Christ, but some prophecy, some theology. Yet he's patient with us. We live our lives. We go our own way when we should do all things for his glory. But he's patient with us. When he revealed his death again, what happened? They're arguing about who's going to be the greatest. You say, yeah, look at, no, look at me. Look at you. How many times do we try to exalt ourselves above others? I'm better than you. I do that. I read my Bible more than you. I'm more spiritual than you. But he's patient with us. The next time he reveals, they're worried about sitting on his right and left hand. It isn't about you. How many times we make it about us? When we should be living for him. Yet he's patient with us. On the night of his death, he turns the most important feast into about himself. And they're doing the same thing. How many times do you commit the same sin? How many times do I commit the same sin? And we come and repent. Surely God's going to blow up. Surely Christ is going to be, that's the last time. But he's patient. How do we become more patient? We look upon his patience. We say, God, make me like that. Make me like Christ. We spend our time in the word, gazing upon him. 
gazing upon his love for us. And as we'll tell a little later in 2 Corinthians in chapter 5, that it's the love of Christ that compels us. We look upon his love, his patient love, and that compels us to become more patient. We want to be like him. We cry out, God, make me like him. I will not rest until I'm like Christ. That's how you become more patient. But notice, it says, but we are with unveiled face. What's that? We'll back up a few verses. Verse 14, uh, 2 Corinthians 3, 14. But the minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted at the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. So, is this, is this just anyone? Just anyone? They can say, okay, I'm going to look into my Bible. I'm going to look at the patience of Christ. And I'm going to become more patient. No, this is only for those with unveiled faith. But the veil is only taken away when you turn to Christ. Some of you may have heard, oh, just invite Jesus into your heart. That's nowhere in the Bible. You may have heard... Oh, you know, just start reading your Bible. Just start going to church. Just start doing these things. That's nowhere in the Bible. That's not going to save you. You must turn to Christ. When you turn, you turn away from something. You can't turn to Christ without turning away. Paul puts it like this. You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Have you turned away from living for yourself? Jesus says, if anyone will come after me, he must deny himself, refuse himself, take up his cross, even suffering for me, and follow me. He says, if you seek to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you will find it. This is turning to Christ. So my question is, have you turned to Christ? Has your face been unveiled? Do you see glory Do you see something magnificent when you look upon the patience of Christ? Perhaps you might say, no, I mean, okay, there's a patient person. No, big deal. I see no glory. Why? Go down a few verses. Chapter 4, verse 3. said, but even if our gospel is veiled, It is veiled to those who are perishing. In other words, you're on your way to hell. I take no delight in saying that. But it is the truth. Verse 4 says, Whose mind the God of this age which is Satan, by the way. The God of this age has blinded who do not believe. Lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Why do you see no glory? As we've just looked at some 
episodes in the life of Christ. Why do you see no glory? As the disciples, Jesus Christ is transfigured and you see nothing. Luke tells us they fell asleep. Why do you see no glory when you look at Christ? Because you're perishing and you're perishing because Satan has blinded your mind. But you can't blame Satan because it's because you do not believe. You're going right along with him. It's not, it's not as if you're trying to see and he's blinding you. No, you're going right along with him. You refuse to believe. You refuse to forsake your life with Jesus Christ. That's why you see no glory. But is there hope for you? Yes, there is. Look, verse 5. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ, or Christ Jesus the Lord in ourselves as bondservants for Jesus' sake. I'm not up here preaching for my sake. When Jeff, when Sean, when they get up here, they aren't for their own sake. We preach Jesus Christ the Lord. Jesus Christ, the God-man, the Lord, the master, the ruler, the owner of all. And ourselves as nothing but slaves for Jesus' sake. And why? Verse 6, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness who was shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God and the face of Jesus Christ. That is my prayer for you today. If you see no glory in the Lord of patience, the Lord of love, in Jesus Christ you see no glory, my prayer for you today is that your eyes might be open to see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Because he is being patient with you right now. In Romans chapter 2, we're told, do you despise the goodness, the forbearance, the patience of God? Not knowing that the kindness, the, that patience of God it's to lead you to repentance, to lead you to turn from your sins, to turn to Christ. But he says, but because of your hard hearts, because you refuse to turn as God's being patient with you. He says, you're stacking up the wrath of God on your own head for the day of judgment. So my plea to you this morning, if you see no glory in the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that you would see your state, see that you are perishing, seeing that you are on your way to hell because your mind is blinded, because of Satan and your own unbelief. You're treasuring up, you're stacking up the wrath of God on your head which will come crashing down on you in the day of judgment. But don't let it be that way. No, today. You can turn to Christ. You can turn away from your sin. 
You can turn to him. Young or old, you can be saved. The veil can be removed. You can see the glory of Christ. You can be transformed to his image. And you can live eternally. And one day, see the patient Lord of glory, the patient Lord Jesus Christ, you can see him face to face. You can turn today. Father God, holy and righteous Father, I thank you for this time that we can spend beholding the glorious patience of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that we're not like the man that looks in the mirror. We look in your word. We see the disciples. We see them missing the point. We see them selfishly concerned with themselves. We look in the mirror. But when we leave, we immediately forget what we look like. May that not be true about any of us in this room. For all my brothers, all my sisters in this room, I pray that they would leave this room to a whole nother degree of patience as they beheld the patience of Christ. And for anyone who is on their way to hell because their minds are blinded, they see no glory in Christ. I pray that their eyes would be open, that they would turn to Christ. For he is patient. Perfectly patient. And he will always be patient. For this is love. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.